<laughs> Welcome to Planet Psychom. I'm Sarah Yo, and my co-hosts are Jason McDermott. And I'm Patrick Bideau. And we are joined today by the inimitable, the inevitable Dr. Chelsea Parlett Pellariti, who is a statistician with a PhD in computational and data science. She's currently an instructional assistant professor teaching data science and computer science. And in her free time, she is a content creator of fine, high quality, tasty memes. <laughs> I try to hold it together. Con- <laughs> I'm trying so hard. Oh, I'm trying so hard, Patrick. For consumption by the masses. Welcome, Chelsea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely emphatic introduction patrick it was you know that's like the third time i've introduced you i think i know you can almost make a career out of it at this point i mean why not i should i should include that on the resume (laughs) introducer of dr parlet pelleriti there you go so how's everybody doing today how's life in the world of psycom it's psychommon Oh, that pun. That's good. That's good. Yes. I'm going to use that in my studies on humor. Jason, thank you for (laughs) tweeting at me about titles, humorous titles, getting more citations. I'm going to work on that for all my paper titles. Really? My paper titles are now, yeah. So, so it was a, a real published, I think, preprint, um, talking (laughs) about uh, humorous titles. Yes. Published (laughs) in the preprint sense of the publish publishment um yeah and and i didn't read the paper yet uh, I, I will admit i saw the i i read the abstract as i do with like 90 percent of of content that i get in my head um but the idea is that if people perceived the titles as funnier they were more memorable mm. like the paper content was more memorable i think sarah did you did you actually read the paper no i looked at the pictures on the tweet so oh, I'm, that's good. I'm kind that's of worse good. than you in that I didn't even read the abstract. <laughs> I looked at the pictures in the tweet that was tweeted by somebody else. Um, but I'm still just going to make it was an my, awesome, cool paper. Yeah, and I'm yeah, just still going to take my titles funny. Right? You know? I know. I've been told I not to. if there to. was any sort of... What? Yeah, really? I mean, I can't remember what it was. Um, but one of the papers that I wrote during my dissertation, we had a really punny title um, and one of my co-authors was like, you maybe don't want to do that. And I was like, ah! okay. Oh man. <laughs> okay. That's crazy. I know. I was robbed of all those oh, citations. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Seriously. you were robbed of all those citations. You would have a much higher citation rate on that paper had you included that pun, I think. Honestly. None of this is kinda... backed by actual research empirical data. Disclaimer there. <laughs> I kind of wonder if there was any sort of uh so I didn't even get I didn't even see this or hear about it until right now. So I'm coming at it from even less of an informed place uh than Sarah or Jason. <laughs> but I kind of wonder if there was a breakdown of um any sort of demographic interesting situations given who's excited about a punny title and who isn't. Hmm. You know? I Totally think I, I feel like this gets back to some of our conversations that we were having at AAAS about like your audience, right? Like humor as how how does it 
how does it play to your audience? And part of the problem is, is that you might have lots of different audiences, right? You might have someone who's like, oh, that's the best thing I've ever heard. And then you might have, mm -hmm. well, I don't think that's so great. I, was, I like those voice actors, those voice characters <laughs> good? that yeah. you have, Jason. Uh, although we should like <laughs> remind our listeners that Chelsea graciously joined us on the panel uh, at the American Association for the Advancement of Science Conference back in February. We have actually been trying to plan this since then, which I think was in like mid to early February, right? Um, but here we are. So this is sort of the follow-up to that panel. We wanted to talk more. There were so many things to talk about. Before we started recording, we were actually having a conversation about ethics, which was really interesting um, that I want to, I would love to dive into more later. Um, but maybe we could hear a little more about you, Chelsea, and just kind of how you got to, you know, because you're our guest. Although maybe you'll join <laughs> us more often and you'll be a permanent, semi-permanent yeah. guest. <laughs> well, I certainly won't deny myself an opportunity to talk about myself. So um, I think we've talked a little bit about this on the panel, but to, to review, I'm a statistician, um, but even from being a kid, I was very into humor and communication and it kind of runs in my blood. Uh, a lot of my family focuses on communication as well. And I was just obsessed with things like uh, The Number Devil. Have you guys heard of that book? I don't know if you guys are math people. Oh my gosh. No, okay. no tell, tell me about The Number Devil. Number and devil. if you have kids, yeah. buy this for them when they're like nine to 12. Cats? Um, <clears throat> Cats? Yeah, sure. Cats. <laughs> is it appropriate um, for cats? It, I mean, it teaches you advanced math. So I don't know how much your cats will love to sit around for that, but perhaps uh, I think cats some are, catnip on it. I think cats are smarter than, than they let on. Um, but so this book is a weird fever dream of a child who dreams up this tiny little red devil uh, who teaches him math. Um, and does so in a very huffy, like snobby sort of way. Um, but it, it's this beautiful, very um, descriptive, the, the illustrations are beautiful. So for instance, they teach you about um, like the Fibonacci sequence and they teach you about like addition and, and all these patterns and numbers with really cute examples. So like they talk about like bunnies breeding and there'll be like these really great illustrations of like a huge field of like infinite bunnies after, you know, so many rounds of breeding. Um, and I love that I kind of stuff. I question whether <laughs> this book is appropriate for a nine to 12 year old. It, it doesn't talk, it doesn't questioning how. <laughs> it's not a how to. I'm questioning manual. whether it's appropriate for cats because <laughs> I mean. True. Bunnies. Yeah, and, you yes. know, yeah. that really, they'd interrupt just, the Fibonacci. Gotta, they would attack the bunnies. <laughs> I gotta put this out there really quick. There's this one thing that we did uh, back in high school. There was a cat lab and it's not the cat that you think. It wasn't dissection. It was a cat lab and it was on genetics and it was how things are passed on. And you had to press a button to make the next generation happen. But as soon as you press the button, it went meow. Oh. You pressed it again, it went meow. So you had an entire computer lab because remember, this is the olden days. So it was a lab of computers and there, you hear the whole lab going meow, 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 meow. That's a lot of cats. Why was, it, right now in the lab. why was it meowing? 
Why wasn't it meowing? I see. <laughs> Great <laughs> argument. QED. <laughs> right. Oh. It could meow, therefore. Yeah. Therefore but anyway, the number devil. Anyway, so I love that kind of yes. stuff. Um, another example that I think I did talk about at uh, and on the panel is the Phantom Toll Booth. Um, so I really loved these mm-hmm. combinations of creative with educational. Um, and that continued throughout my like growing up years. Um, I also just remembered when I was thinking about this podcast. Okay. Did you guys watch Bill Nye, the science guy when that came out? Cause I was right at my generation. Okay. Um, I yeah. will never forget. And so when I was thinking about this podcast, it came up, uh, Bill Nye, did a parody of Love Shack about blood. And I don't remember the title, but it has stuck with me for Oh, I bet decades. it's on YouTube though. I bet it I is. Bet you it's should on YouTube. link that in the show notes. I know. You should look yeah, I'm going to link that in the show notes. <laughs> but I, I was obsessed and, and we lived in Seattle when I was a really little kid. And so uh, we, I went and met Bill Nye and it was so exciting. Um, and then in high school, I would write educational raps um for some of my AP classes and so I really like are those on YouTube I yes I didn't want to know I didn't host them so I don't know because my friend was the <laughs> producer and like put them up there got it um got it I might I should ask her if she has them um, I should ask though <laughs> as like somebody who didn't grow up in the United States I mm-hmm. had no context for the phantom toll booth so is it like <gasps> sciencey or it's um it's a fantasy book it's a fantasy children's book but it has elements of educational content um in it so for instance the things that struck me as as always it's math I should have known my grandfather's also a mathematician <laughs> he's a professor um but they, they have like this weird interaction with a, I think it's like a dodecahedron. Like, so then they talk about all the faces of this character that um, is like a multifaceted kind of like geometric object, or there's uh, one of the main ish characters is like a a math wizard. Um, And so they talk about a lot of these concepts uh, really embedded in the story. Like it's not a story meant to teach you math, but it like talks about a lot of these things. Um, ugh, you should, if you haven't read it, it, it holds up like as a you know, <laughs> late 20s something like I, it holds I up. should read, I should reread it. So it's a, it's like, it's a novel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like okay. a YA novel and it's, okay. it's fantastic. I mean, I recently reread it, um, for something else that I was doing and I was like, wow, like this still makes me laugh. Like, I don't know if it's all nostalgia, which you wouldn't have, but it's a good book. <laughs> I feel like there's also a fair amount of like discrete math and a fair amount of like logic yeah. that is implicit in the story. Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you're paying attention to it, you'll really see it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of very, I think, really interesting wordplay in it. Oh, for Especially, sure. for example, like when they're ordering their dinners. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's a light meal. <laughs> Exactly. Or a square meal. They they basically take everything literally. So there's this character that's standing up trying to say what they want for dinner. Um, and he says like, oh, we should have a square meal. And they bring out little like very dry squares <laughs> of food or like a light. I forget what they did for a light meal. It was probably something like bright. Um, yeah. Or the, the beginning of their journey, they meet uh, the weatherman 
but it's the WH weatherman, oh. not the WEA weatherman. Right. Um, <clears throat> so they have a lot. Of, yeah, I agree. They have, anyway, this isn't a book review podcast, so <laughs> I'll move on. But it's a wonderful book. And these these all hold up into adulthood. Um, anyway, that got me interested in SciComm and it, I didn't even realize it. And I think I have been psychoming through whatever science I'm involved in with my life. Cause I started out uh, as a psychology major. So I have a social science background, um, basically up until the PhD and everywhere I go, I am like very interested in psychoming things. Even I just remembered <clears throat> that my senior year, the class that made me actually fall in love with statistics was also a research methods class. And we had to design a study and I wanted to do how does humor affect learning so we we took a video about Galileo that was made by some YouTube psychomer I forget at the time who it was um and we made a boring version and showed people the two and then gave them a quiz um and I remember my teacher was like oh like so, like they, they were very like reserved about <laughs> the use of humor but like me and my group were like very excited about it obviously this was just for a class so I think we had like an n of 10 they, but they were, were they were they like were they like mm, well I don't know about that. <laughs> that was almost spot on were you there <laughs> we're gonna have to name that voice character Jason at some point no J- Jason was the professor so you're I not- was the professor yeah, back in 2015 totally at UCSD Jason was there <laughs> yep yep absolutely he was there so wait so I this is fascinating so you were a social scientist up until the PhD yeah so I um that class that so actually the class that made me fall in love with stats was the precursor to the class where I did the humor um study but I was a psychology major because I wanted to be a lawyer um and I was really focused on um kind of like neuroscience and kind of therapy types of uh psychology and then I fell in love with stats and realized that most people don't like stats so I could make a lot of money um doing it for people (laughs) which is ironic given that I chose to stay at the university dollar signs (laughs) dollar signs Um, going back into academia that's where the money yeah apparently Um, yeah and so then I didn't have time to switch my degree because I didn't have money to switch my degree like stay longer um so I was self-taught and took a lot of community college classes and then luckily my job after undergraduate uh was at a university I went to a different university UC. I went to UCI and worked there. So I got to meet a lot of people and audit their classes. Um, And I really made the switch there. But even my dissertation focuses on statistical methods for uh, psychology. Um, So I've really been able to meld the two, although obviously I've branched out since then. Um, But yeah, I am a social scientist by by training (laughs) or by some training. I'm going to have to look up your dissertation. Oh, please don't. It's <laughs> it's a very niche topic. It's uh, something called meta memory. So it's like how you think about your own memory and how you assess your own memory. Oh, interesting. I fell into it because there was a task we used in the job I had between undergraduate and um, graduate school where we would ask uh, older adults to predict how well they would remember things. Um, and what I noticed was that 
I, I think there was a lot of um, individual differences in how people utilize that scale. And a friend and I even talked about, uh, she and I are, I'm half Asian and she was Asian. And we talked about how culturally we kind of been brought up to not overemphasize our abilities. And so like, we would never rate ourselves, like our scale was zero to 10. We would never mm. rate a 10, like please never. Um, and so we said, I think this is mathematically impacting our analyses. Um, and so one of the papers in my dissertation is developing a way of normalizing that scale for this measure. So you can see if the impact of how people use the scale, both an anchor point, as well as the variation around that anchor point that people will go makes a difference. And it, it seems to anyway, but so I designed some, um, some ways of analyzing that and then applied some Bayesian statistics and machine learning to that, but it's a very niche problem. So it is not, yeah, but I don't think it's actually a very niche problem. Cause I think about like the type of work that I do and survey research, I mean, you are sort of relying on a large sample size, right? To wash out the variation or the random error. But at the same time, there are cultural differences in how we answer these questions about ourselves, yeah. right? And I think that does apply in terms of like, I'm like you, I'm Asian, I'm of Chinese descent, and I would never rate myself extremely on like a far end of any scale right well, especially the high end like you know what's interesting okay so maybe you should look at my, my dissertation so one of the things <laughs> that is in my dissertation and we're working on publishing right now um is looking at the impact of framing of that rating so these ratings are called judgments of learning because uh, you're judging if you've learned uh and we did an experiment uh, which was the bane of my existence my last year of my PhD, where we framed it either as a judgment. So like a, how likely do you think it is that you'll remember this versus a, we, we gave them a gamified version. Um, oh. And the way that people use the scale is incredibly heavily determined by that framing. Um, I have this, when it comes out, when it's published, it, there's this really cool figure showing um, the differences in, in what ratings people will give themselves when you ask them to judge versus when you ask them, like you, you kind of make it a game of like you're betting if you remembered it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of framing differences. And one thing we didn't really look at was like cultural um, mediators of that, but that would have been so fascinating. Uh, we yeah. did look at, have you guys heard of like the biz Baz scale? It's like a, yes. okay. So we use that. Wait, and no, use we, that not everyone. No, oh, sorry, not everyone. sorry. Right. Like, no, like, not at all. So it's, it's the behavioral inhibition scale and the behavioral approach avoidance, I believe. I've had to yeah. write it so many times. Or like activation scale or something like this, right? Yeah. So like in my understanding, it's how, um, you are inhibited by like negative potential outcomes or how you uh, approach or are drawn to like positives. And since our uh, one of our framings was like a, a betting task, we thought that that might mediate the relationship. Um, yeah, so we looked at all sorts of things and it was, it was really interesting, but my favorite thing was that that framing changed how people use the scale. And I think if we looked at it through a cultural lens, like if I'm playing a game, I might be more likely to rate myself a 10 
because it's not me making a judgment about myself. It's me, you know, getting that cash (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) I mean, isn't that also, it wasn't that one of the initial tests that was done uh, for some of the Dunning-Kruger analysis Hmm. where they went to, um, what was it? They went to a gun show or something like that. And they got people to rate how good they were they were at gun safety, and then they gave them a test. Yes, that gun show, Sarah. Yes, the muscles. For everyone listening, Sarah's um, flexing. It's true. But then, but then they uh, they offered a cash reward for them being exemplary in their knowledge of gun safety, and then this caused them to rate themselves more highly. Really. I believe that that is an accurate representation, but please, people who are more... Uh, it's possible we should look this up prior to talking about this. this is, so, so, Patrick, you realize <laughs> that you just stated your knowledge of Dunning-Kruger, um, you know, yep. with maybe not having the actual knowledge that you thought you did about Dunning-Kruger. That's a meta-Dunning-Kruger. It's a meta-Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, no. it's it's more than no, no. i'm i'm like for for our I'm, listeners let's yeah let's start with what's the dunning kruger effect <laughs> who wants to do this wait what none of us want to volunteer oh, that we no. know i know now now no no one wants to volunteer now 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 we're all like no yeah <laughs> so the dunning kruger effect is that um that people tend to uh overestimate the amount of knowledge they have about a subject and they don't realize that they are doing that i believe is that and isn't it the opposite for actual experts isn't part of it that like experts also like are more realistic or more straightforward with the uncertainty of their knowledge so it sounds like they know less (laughs) which is very true i think (laughs) Yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's one of those cognitive biases. Oh, oh wait, a, a, a pivot though. Yes. And well, maybe not pivot. a pivot, but a, a point that I, that I was making when, uh, that I was thinking about um, Chelsea's uh, research. Um, I wonder if this is like applicable to SciComm and the way that it's applicable is that when you think about researchers promoting their own work versus somebody else promoting your work, it's really hard as a researcher to, basically come out and say, yeah, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I think everybody should know about it. You're basically like, nobody really needs to know about this. In fact, it was really not a big deal. In fact, we, we did this stupid, like boneheaded test. It was like stupid, simple. And yeah. And you're already like, I mean, that's I mean, you could how be, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. That's how I feel about yeah, a lot of this. I know stuff. people so I will wonder... ask me to tweet our papers and I'll be like, oh, okay, I hate tweeting about myself, but. <laughs> and I wonder about like, this would be a great study, right? Do like Nobel Prize winners feel the same about the work, mm. their work that has won Nobel Prizes, you mm. know? Or, yeah. and maybe it matters like the age, time since Nobel Prize, right? Because maybe you get normalized to this idea that yes, that was an amazing, like great, wonderful, you know, pivotal moment in science that I have contributed to. I mean, but then also don't you see the onset of Nobel Prize syndrome or Nobel syndrome? Oh, where they think they know everything about any subject. (sighs) I think I could hear that eye roll. (laughs) Right. 
disclaimer, yeah, we don't, we, we are not endorsing a Nobel Prize syndrome and we do not know empirically <laughs> whether that uh, bias exists. <laughs> I don't even think you need a Nobel Prize. Sometimes you need a famous analytics blog or something like that and they'll decide they can talk about anything. <laughs> That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, gosh, where were we? That that was a really uh, wide tangent, y'all. This was this was awesome. This was I think this started out Chelsea introducing yourself. Yeah, and, we're still there. We're about, still on yeah. Chelsea's introduction, oh, actually. By by the way, Chelsea, I need to go back and reread the Phantom Tollbooth. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons is because it. So I read it when I was a kid, and um, and it has. It, people have pointed out since that it has a map of the yes, like like the one that you made that is like like the one that I made and so I've often wondered about this because um and maybe this is a good segue into another into a psychom topic or or when I'm creating content I worry that I'm recreating content that's already been made that I have seen mm-hmm. but I don't remember mm-hmm. and so like I'm wondering like maybe I was influenced when I was, you know, whenever I read it, like 10, 10 years old or something. And I was like, wow, this is an awesome map. And I just don't remember it. And then I'm like, I'm going to, you know, like my, my older self is like, I've got this great new idea. <laughs> and, and you know, you, there's all, there's a lot of maps like that. But. Did you just make a foray into meta memory? <laughs> oh, wow. We are getting. Wow. Good so links. meta. We're wow. meta meta. Yeah. Meta, now. meta topics. <laughs> For a meta psychom podcast, we're pretty meta. Oh about oh our God. topic <laughs> i do i do have to ask though about what this map is again no context for the phantom toll booth and i also want to link in the show notes to jason's map so that we can share that yeah yeah i was just looking at it um and let's see if i, still I think have it's it one out. of yes. his more famous it is <clears throat> yeah it it has like the mountains of ignorance the valley of sound the can't really read all of this. Dictionopolis. Oh, the doldrums. We can't yes. forget the doldrums. Or hills of <laughs> confusion. <laughs> yeah, the doldrums, right? The sea of knowledge. So it's like, yeah, uh, all these concepts because that's the, as I remember it, the Phantom Tollbooth is like, takes place in this world where there are abstract ideas that are real. Yeah. Yeah, I Very mean, there's cool, yeah. it's easy to be influenced. I even worry now that I've been doing SciComm for a couple of years that I've like made the same joke before and not remembered. <laughs> I, have, I have done it. <laughs> I have started out to draw a comic and been like, this seems really familiar. And then I search back and like two years ago, I drew that comic. So like, I have a question. How do, you, a how do you archive your works? Like, oh my not, gosh. At <laughs> not at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to, I want to have um, someone suggested, oh God, it was either on a podcast or on Twitter that there could be a searchable meme database where we tag my memes uh, with different concepts because it would be really useful to be like, oh, I need a meme about, you know, ridge regression. Um, where did I last post about this? And I've thought about right. going through and just, you know, one weekend doing a month of my tweets and just tagging them and putting them somewhere. Uh, but I have better things to do at the moment. So that hasn't happened <laughs> yet. I think we, I think we need, I think we need an AI engine to do this yeah. because oh, well, I totally hey. have that same thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's my, I'll get some, um, I'll get some students. I'll 
I'll get some interns. We'll build a go. like classification and storage system for uh, SciComm memes. Yep, you've lost me. That'll be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have the exact same problem. I do have like I have you know a folder with all of my well almost all of my comics. Um, the problem is, is that I I will name them. Sometimes I'll name them like a subject thing and other times I'll be like oh that's a really funny thing to name it and I'll name it that and then I'll be like where was that comic about you know whatever and I have no idea because it's like maybe you should have a git repository or something of these things I don't know good idea yeah one of our there's a um a person on twitter that does um like drawings of things and they have like a github repository but it needs to be searchable i think that's the problem is like the tagging system is really where where it gets you what about like okay so (laughs) now i'm really really leaning into this like uh you know older academic who's like doddering around and not tech savvy at all and doesn't know social media despite studying social media um (laughs) what about something like tumblr is that yeah the tags on tumblr would be a really good way to do that yeah i guess we could have like tumblr accounts of our or instagram tumblr it's kind of uh i don't Hmm, well i don't know if that's a very good idea (laughs) (laughs) there there's there's that jason Actually, hey Jason, we no, just, that's a great idea, by the way. Wait. Jason, we've just defined your role in the podcast. At any point where there <laughs> yes. needs to be something, that voice comes in as the that voice will come right out. There. Um, this reminds me of a question that I had for you guys because I'm wondering if there's been any research done on types of SciComm and what platforms they're best for. Because I talked about this on a different podcast. I was on a podcast called Everything Hurts to talk about SciComm. Um, and we talked about how Instagram is a really bad place to do good SciComm because there's no good conversation tool. You can't really retweet, mm. I mean, retweet obviously is a Twitter yeah. thing, but you can't reshare. The conversations are not threaded in a way that people can read them if you're not a part of them. Um, and we talked about this. So it's more of like a, I'm showing you this pretty science that I did instead of having a conversation. Whereas I always view my Twitter as like a place to have conversations but I've been doing a lot of TikTok and it has the same problems as Instagram and yet I'm still Mm. doing things there still having conversations so I'm wondering if there's research behind like what types of SciComm are effective on different platforms because as someone who's trying to branch out a little bit I the things I do on Twitter fall very flat on Instagram or god forbid LinkedIn um, so it would be great to know. <laughs> it's a, LinkedIn is a classic platform for humor. Classic I, I platform for <laughs> Joe growing. I, I posted stuff there and it has gone, it has gone world. clunk. Yeah. That platform is like the epitome of that character that Jason has been doing all podcasts. <laughs> well, I think we should be posting on LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, the thing about the research is that when, like, most studies focus on one platform, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, and I was just complaining, okay, full disclosure, I was just complaining a little bit about this today in my research group meeting about, like, how as, you know, communication journals love to publish theoretical things, theoretical abstract things that don't always have 
a clear application to practitioners of science communication. I feel like maybe I've already said this to you guys, but that kind of, and to me, communication is a very applied discipline, right? It's sort of the roots of it, right? Are, are its history is pretty applied, right? And so I just think, to me, it seems like quite a shame that we don't have more work that speaks to practitioners, like answering the question that you just asked, right? Because honestly, I'm not sure if I'd ever be able to publish a study like that because I'm looking at different platforms, right? On purpose. And <laughs> on purpose, but then it's like, oh, are you using the theory of framing? Well, it can't be framing because it's completely different platforms. It's completely different content. So, you know, it's not really about framing. It's that question I think is more about the technical aspects of, you know, science communication, right? Which are very practical, you know? And so I think about like, well, where can I publish something like this? I don't know, honestly. Start a journal. I mean, is it also, <laughs> is it also driven, right? Is it also driven by viewership? Because I feel like, you know, you brought up LinkedIn, like people go on LinkedIn for specific purposes, right? People, right. Are, people are going on the gram to see the pics mm -hmm. most of the time, right? Wow, I nearly but didn't follow have... that. But yes, I got it now. <laughs> but then, you know, people are going on Twitter for a lot of things. They're going on yeah. TikTok for a lot of things. But they're only going to go on Substack for like one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I wonder if there's some component that's pushing what, okay. what the desirable area is based on the viewership. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, it'd be interesting to know, like, what, what groups are kind of have greater affinity for, for which kinds of platforms, right? Is it mm -hmm. by age demographic? Is it, you know, cultural? Why are you going to call it Facebook like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, snap. Yeah. Oh, snap. <laughs> Just uh, Facebook meta. If you're listening, that was Patrick. Patrick. <laughs> you know you know do not hire him <laughs> um but you know what i mean like how does the audience slice on these different platforms and that probably speaks to the types of content that make it right mm -hmm. on these types of platforms that mm -hmm. kind of you know virality too is one of those things like popularity virality these things are like so hard to study there's you know it's still an open question like what makes content popular like what makes content retweeted or shared like we don't I don't think we have a very good answer about that I think there's a really interesting thing that you see sometimes like talking about virality if you go on a tiktokers profile right sometimes you'll find the one that has you know 2.6 million views and all the rest of the 2000 yeah yeah it's like Everybody flocked to this one, but didn't click. Why, right? Like, why? It, right? It happens. Mm -hmm. It happens on Twitter too, because you see somebody with a you know totally viral tweet, and you click on their profile, thousand and they've got like a thousand followers, <laughs> yeah. and you're just like, wow, that you just struck it rich for that, you know. But then, of course, there's of there's fame. like the rich get richer idea, right? On social media, that's like very prevalent. If you just have a lot of followers, you know, your tweets are just gonna. You can say, yes. yeah, I, I that is that is funny. I have noticed that recently. I think there's a threshold where, like, 
I can tweet nothing for a week because I'm busy and gain a ton of followers still. And I can tweet random things and like get 30, 50 likes where if anyone else tweeted it, it would be like, no one would like it. And I've noticed that. And I've been like, that's so unfair. I mean, I love it. Like keep following me on Twitter (laughs) at Chelsea. Um, But it is like something where people will follow you. I think just because you have a lot of followers. And so I noticed when I have viral tweets now, I get a ton of followers because I think they click on my page and see, oh, she has a lot of followers already. I should follow her. I should follow her. Whereas like when I didn't have a lot of followers, viral tweets were exactly like Jason was describing where you get a lot of likes or retweets, but no one would really follow you. Um, So there is some sense of like, you go like, oh, everyone else follows her. Yeah. Okay. I will too. Yeah. There was an article that was just published in science that was sort of um, like, an analysis of the way that Twitter was used during the pandemic to disseminate COVID stuff. Mm -hmm. And it actually indicated with some citations that really, if you had fewer than a thousand followers, you weren't going to interact with the public. Like your tweets as a scientist just weren't, they were going to interact with other scientists, but the general populace wasn't ever going to latch onto them. You needed a big like group already of followers who were going to latch onto things and people who had you know 100 200 half a million followers they were the ones that were really influencing the thoughts and the views and whatnot of the twitter sphere more as a whole and they had some good citations behind it too Hmm. so i feel like somebody has done a psychom (laughs) network analysis I, i i feel like i have seen this and i i think it might have been for one of the national academies like yeah basically six degrees of red pen black pen and chelsea parlette right there you go. Exactly. i was gonna say you should do that for stats twitter uh i'm really interested i would oh gosh i would especially be really interested in the differences between like data science and statistics psychom um because i really find that my data science content does but be- i mean they overlap so much but it does better because it's marketed more broadly. People know of it. It sounds very sexy, whereas statistics sounds very kind of like stodgy and like, hmm. oh, whatever. Um, it'd be really <laughs> interesting to, to see. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> it would really be interesting to see like the different networks that form around these like very similar topics that are kind of marketed and like presented very differently, especially because there's been a huge uh, uproar on stats Twitter recently because a big influencer said that you don't need statistics to do data science. Um, oh, and kind of like really? broadly, bro- yeah, broadly applied that because I, I think that's true in some applications. Sure. Um, but they sure. were basically saying that for everyone. And even in the comments, people would be like, oh, really? I'm about to spend, you know, a year doing a statistics master's or to like do this boot camp. Should I not? And the person was like, yeah, no, like don't do it. And statisticians oh have gosh. been like in uproar <laughs> about this. And, and so it's really funny though, because like I think there's some differences in the way that SciComm happens in these spaces. And as someone who does both, because like I'm a statistician, but I obviously teach data science. I do quote <laughs> data science sometimes. Um, the way these spaces feel like they interact with me and that I interact with them is very different for the fact that they're very, in my opinion, not in that other influencer's opinion, in my opinion, they're very similar and overlapping. In your experience, they're similar and overlapping for you. Yeah. And in my experience, you do need statistics in some way (laughs) to do data science 
for the most part. <laughs> well, also, it's one of the things that's probably both a good thing and a bad thing, depending on how you look at it, is that there's a very low bar to entry for Twitter, yeah. right? You sign up, you get an account, you're on Twitter, right? And there's no, there's no inherent peer review that goes into the process prior to putting something out there unless you yourself put your, you know, 240 characters and then yeah. thread thereafter into some sort of peer review context. So theoretically, you can come out and say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And then it's either on the reader or on someone to peer review in real time so to have that sort of filter. So inevitably, you're going to get the people who are more inclined to troll or just, you know, say something, you know, Dunning-Kruger-esque like me. <laughs> so this is interesting. So I, I wrote a piece on post-publication peer review around, do you guys remember the arsenic bacteria, NASA, hoo-ha? Oh, no. oh, oh back my gosh. When, what okay. happened? Yes. When, that, when that came out, I remember exactly where I was, oh like JFK <laughs> being assassinated like it was yesterday. I was in lab <laughs> and I read the paper and I was like, really? You needed to do one experiment. You purify the DNA and do a metal analysis. That is it. You need to do 1920s biochemistry. And they just right. didn't do it. And even me as a grad student was like, this is dumb. <laughs> Wait, what happened? <laughs> what is this? I must be too young. <laughs> what? No. Okay. Was it 2011? Was it 2011? I was graduating oh high school in 2011. Okay. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I was in graduate school in 2011. Um, Jason was 64. <laughs> I was, <laughs> was the alter ego. Was. I was, I was in AARP already. <laughs> he was huffing already about you know. I was. <clears throat> that should be faxed. I don't. Anyway, know. what happened? What happened? <laughs> so there was a, a a big discovery paper published in Science, um, and the premise, Patrick, please correct me if I'm wrong, that was that. Um, biological life was discovered that could exist on arsenic that was like based on arsenic instead of phosphorus the, mm. ar the arsenic life bacterium basically big yeah. deal right because i mean big deal yes <laughs> ostensibly yeah. paradigm changing for <laughs> all of biology right it, i mean and i think and yeah go ahead yeah if you if you look at their analysis like their analysis wasn't wrong you know they were looking at like where the arsenic was in a microbe and there were hot spots of it and it was higher in concentration in the microbes and outside that's fine this is not intrinsically problematic because you can totally have microbes that will you know bioaccumulate or create inclusion bodies of heavy metals or interact interestingly with heavy metals like there's microbes that will basically siphon electrons off uranium you know and that's amazing and something that I'd love to geek out about. Bernard. Also, this is not the Dunning-Kruger effect because Patrick knows what he's talking about in this domain. He, he is an expert in this domain. So just going to put Sometimes. that out there. Um, but what ended up happening is they did really complicated analyses that made beautiful, beautiful pictures, but they didn't do the more simple types of analyses that I felt would have been a more direct measurement because they were physically saying that in this case, there was a place where arsenic was put in place of phosphorus. phosphorus. Mm. So if you have, you know, your, your sugar phosphate backbone and you're sticking arsenic in there, 
that is utterly unprecedented and is basically <laughs> called into question everything that humans believe to be life and search for extraterrestrial life and everything like that. So it was a mind-blowing yeah. moment. Yeah, so this is like, oh my God, extraterrestrial life and we might have to like rethink how we think about life on Earth, right? This is one of those like uh, not normal science moments a la Kuhn, right? And so, you know, and I think part of it was that NASA had kind of done this science by press release. They'd come out and said it. The headlines were very, you know, exciting as yeah. as one would be if, right, if this turned out to, if the hypothesis turned out to be supported and replicated, you know, and um, eventually there was a, a microbiologist at the University of British Columbia who got a sample, I think, and ran some of these experiments. Patrick, you probably know more about what Rosie Redfield did. Um, but, she, you know, they, there were a lot of comments, for example, in science after the paper came out, right? But again, those take time to get published in science. Mm -hmm. And science, the journal in the field of science, is one of the <laughs> faster journals, right, <laughs> that publish stuff. They're actually really quite quick when we think about publication. And um, so, this uh, microbiologist at UBC started blogging and kind of, um, you know, and, and at the time, right, blogging was kind of a way she had like lab notes and stuff. And she had started saying, well, I'm thinking about, you know, all the things that weren't done, probably a lot of those things that Patrick had said in the original paper. Um, and, you know, they should do this. And, and so it was kind of like a post-publication peer review. Ostensibly, mm -hmm. it had been peer reviewed, right, because it's published in science. Right. Um, but, you know, after the fact, it kind of went through this transparent open for anyone to see if you were looking, you know, at blogs or looking at the news, mm -hmm. um, this type of post publication peer review. And eventually it was it was refuted. Right. The, the article, I believe, is still published in science with um, the Redfield article that follows up a couple of years later that kind of refutes the, the finding. But it was just an interesting kind of, um, and we were talking about how on Twitter, you know, you can kind of almost say anything, right? But there are, I think, scientists who kind of do look on Twitter and say, well, wait a minute, you know, and, and there are people and researchers on Twitter who kind of, there's someone on Twitter who calls out like, I always see images of gels. Um, yeah. Oh, um, Elizabeth Right? Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, yes. and I always think it's so interesting, like calling out, you know, bad scientific practices based like unethical, maybe scientific practices. It's so funny, because when I first started seeing those, I was like, she's totally imagining things. But then you actually look at where she's circled. And you're like, that is like, there are duplications. And it's like, not just duplications in the thing, but it's duplications in like the noise in the background and stuff like that. You're just like, how is this stuff? Like, why are people doing this? She is trained and her she's brain. Got, like thousands of them. She is so quick and so good at that. I don't know how you train that yeah. skill. There was another group that was doing that with, um, oh, it was a big deal thing with a researcher at Delaware. She'd published a lot of stuff on um, like how fish move towards signals, chemical signals. And it was oh. something like they're, they're looking at refuting, like, I don't remember how many papers, but it was more than 10. Wow. wow. Like a body of research that was done in Australia and I believe some other places. And it was this group 
that um i believe they were european based Donnie Kruger. Um, <laughs> That's and... our disclaimer. Every time we say something, we're not quite sure about Dunning Kruger effect. Uh, Dunning yeah. Kruger. But you know, this group has called them out and said, you know, there's no way you could have done this. Look at the supplemental data. Like your number columns are replicated. You know, you've yeah, got these right. places of data that shouldn't be. And it's 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 a whole big thing that's blown up in marine biology. And so this like brings up. Uh, and I've been kind of on this replication, like open science. I'm late to the party, guys. I know I'm late to the party on open <laughs> science, right? But I feel like, uh, you know. Jason, Jason, do the voice. Do the voice, Jason. Mm, well, I don't know about that. Why would we want to have open science? <laughs> but like the the idea that science communicates. People are going to steal our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about preprints? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't get me going on preprints okay that's very meta so we should probably explain what preprints are but we'll get to that because that is kind of part of part of this open science idea right like that the fact that we have yeah, social media totally. and scientists now who are communicating publicly who have kind of made much more transparent i think the arsenic bacteria and like Dr. Rosie Redfield's blog, that was kind of one of the early examples of this opening, perhaps, of the doors of science, right, of the kind of closed peer review type procedures and the, you know, and there's not a lot of unethical or, you know, bad behavior occurring behind the scenes, but it certainly does exist, right? And if it didn't, we wouldn't actually have this open science kind of movement that we have right now, I think. I mean, you probably all remember the time that you first saw a paper that had the reviewers listed. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it was a, it was a frontiers and it was a frontiers journal. It was frontiers of microbiology and it was was early 20 teens, Mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, wow, the reviewers agreed to be listed. Yeah. Um, (laughs) A couple of the, a couple journals do open peer reviews where you can go and look at the review process. Uh, eLife and uh, Pure J, I think, mm-hmm. does it as well. And I've, um, and it's actually really interesting. Yeah, I would just review for MetaPsych, um, who does this as well. And I think that's really interesting. And I think like having reviews as a citable object as well would be, oh, yeah, really useful. And I think I've, what you're saying is so fascinating because one of the questions I had for you too is like, how do we approach SciComm in a personal way versus an institutional way? Because for instance, I wanted to ask Jason because you have a personal Twitter account mm-hmm. and you have a yes. more only SciComm, I would call it more of a professional account. And like, I'm sure you approach what you say differently on those in the same way that like, I think what I do is different than if, you know, my university hired me and was like, you need to tweet about our department science. And so that's a really interesting question that I think could be studied because a lot of content creators are doing this on our own. And yet it is a related but separate thing from the type of SciComm that like organizations and groups officially put out. Yeah, I think it's really, I think that's a really interesting area and I, and I feel so, so I don't know how many Twitter accounts I have now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's only three, but there might be even be four. Yeah. But, but it's like, I went through a period where I was like, 
more Twitter accounts. I, I could do this because I can basically, you know, have TweetDeck open and have all these things. And it's like, wow, you really can't. I mean, it's really difficult to manage more than one. Mm-hmm. Like I do, so I do a personal one and then I do red pen, black pen, but I also do have another one that's a little more like it's project uh, related. Oh, interesting. And so on that, on that one, it's like the original idea was that we wanted to get some of our, some of the project things out there. And it, the original idea was that it was going to be a shared um, account with more people, but we just haven't, it hasn't really taken off. Um, but it totally feels different when I'm, po- when I'm posting from there, I'm always like, I, I like double or triple check, like in my head, like, what am I tweeting here? Okay. Just make sure that, you know, it's all okay. Right. I- Whereas with my personal account, I'm a little bit more like, okay. Your personal um, account. You're like, my dad is bomb ass <laughs> professional account. Look at my paper. <laughs> Look at my favorite. I and I can't. I don't seem to be able. I know my Twitter account. I don't have a lot of followers, but I have like a personal Twitter account. And you just got three more. Yes, I got three more. Yes. But honestly, I just I can't seem to get over. I read every tweet that I'm about to send at least five times. And this is like a personal account. I just can't get over. Like I'm thinking about who's my audience. Right. And sometimes, honestly, I think about like my advisors you know, and we're, and I'm really good yeah. friends with my advisors, but I like think about them reading my tweets I, and just like cackling. That's actually true know? though, because I do, because I, because I like, I don't complain about work on my personal account. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the lines where I'm like, because there's a lot of people that I work with that, that follow me. And so like, if I have complaints, I'm like, I, and this is not true. I, other people, you know, other people who are not anonymous accounts do, you know, they're like, man, I had such a bad day at work. We had a bunch of meetings where it was just all crappy. And, you know, even down to like my boss, you know, did this and I really hate it. And I'm like, wow, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't do that. I can't. Well, this relates to what we talked about on the panel where I said, um, when I want to use negative humor, because that tends to do better. I like punch up sort of at systems. I share with Jason, like I, people from work follow me on Twitter and I would never want to say anything directly about them, but I will tweet about a system in a second. If there is a systemic issue, (laughs) I will say something. And so maybe that's an interesting line that people sometimes draw on the personal or sometimes draw on the professional side. Well, I mean, yeah. Does it, does it give you like a different situation in the way that you view what do we call it before acerbic content in what something way? like that yeah well like, like if you're punching if you're punching up at a system right i feel like you can go a little bit harder yeah than absolutely or you know mm-hmm. this person that i work with yeah yeah poor joe I know. I know, right? <laughs> I think that's so we'll call true. Him, we'll call him Jason. Yes, Jason, <laughs> right, right. anonymous name. I think... Well, I really don't know about that. <laughs> um, I think but... you can, because I, I don't feel bad criticizing systems very harshly, but I do feel bad about criticizing people harshly. And so 
Yeah. Like, but even in the same way that like, I wouldn't make an acerbic, you know, joke about um, students because that's punching down, right. even if it's towards yeah. a group or system, whatever. Yeah. But, you know, if our administration does something or like, I've tweeted a lot about course evaluations, like student evaluations of teaching. Oh, um, yeah, let's not even start on those. <laughs> oh, no, let's do um, No, please. <laughs> I could say so much. Um, and I will tweet about that in a second and say that something really snarky, but it, we discussed this on the panel that that's what is engaging. That's what's popular. And that it almost goes with what we were talking about before about trolling, getting a lot of attention, like that acerbic humor is sort of, I wouldn't call it a form of trolling, but I think it's related. Um, and people really engage with that. And so it's hard to give that up in, in effort. I mean, I always will, but it's hard to give that up in efforts of being a kind, empathetic, compassionate psychomer <laughs> yeah. uh, because people engage with that. And so it's, it's interesting to try and find ways to have that tone or that vibe without actually being cruel. Yeah. It's a, a positive, positive feedback loop for okay. a negative yeah. sort of affect. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> But course evaluation. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, right. Different episode, different episode. Different episode. That, we'll save that for a later episode, yeah. It just made me think of, uh, oh my gosh, what's his name? I'm, I'll probably say Are you saying uh, Tim McGill? KB Lame. Uh, Puzzled dude. looks. Yeah. Dude who has it, he's like the second or third most followed TikToker or something. Oh. And oh. so many of his videos are just pointing out like the blatant stupidity of a situation. Hmm. Like you have this device that will open this orange in 13 steps. <laughs> and he just shows you, you open the orange and then he points to it and looks at you like, you are possibly the I've lowest. Seen, I've form. seen his videos. I didn't know who it was. <clears throat> oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And sure. you know, he makes yeah. this entire TikTok career truly right, out of right. pointing out hmm. the painfulness of yeah. you know mundane activities that mm -hmm. are overcomplicated. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, he's always presenting something quote unquote negative. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. but in doing it, it's always there's always a demonstration of an easier way, mm -hmm. but in doing so, the point is to make you feel dumb that you weren't doing it the easier <laughs> way. And so I wonder if there's Well, like... but he's not making the viewer feel dumb necessarily. No, he's not pointing at all. out like how silly and... the contraption or the tool, the and one so, job um... tool is maybe, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And so I'm wondering if this is a way that is something that is like, a big thing to look at systems. Mm -hmm. Like when we talk mm -hmm. about systems in Psycom, you know, do they get more of a pass on this sort of intense content? Yeah. I mean, in the sense that people make more intense content, I absolutely, yeah. and I think that's the yeah. way to do yeah. it. Like we shouldn't be making this about individual people. We should be kind to individual people. But when there are systemic problems, I see no problem in a little snark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's that's the total the 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 total theme of uh red pen black pen is you know at its core it's like making fun of peer review mm -hmm. and parts of the academic process I mean I've got other things that are going on too but 
but that's like the heart of it, right? Um, Super interesting because this is all satire, right? A particular technique of humor yeah. that is very popular and, and quite negative, quite acerbic, can be quite biting, yes. but it is one of the most prevalent forms or types of humor, right? In science content, at least that's sort of what we found when we looked at um, Instagram and Twitter that satire and things like wordplay, right? You can see how wordplay might be something right. easy. Um, so a pun, a play on words of like, you know, I'm an atom, I've lost an electron, my friend, the other atom asks me, are you positive? Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> the dad type jokes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also find humor. It's fine humor. But again, uh, that type of satire and, you know, the poking fun at institutions. And there are some definitions of sat satire versus sarcasm that distinguish between like sarcasm mm. is about individuals, right? Mm. Um, that type of biting humor targeted at individuals versus satire is something that is targeted at a system or an institution. Mm. Um, but those tend to be quite popular, at yeah. least in the science humor realm. Well, in every, I mean, what is the... Um there's been so many examples of that. What is it? The one about eating babies. What is it? A modest. Oh, this got dark. Or something. <laughs> Do you not know what I'm talking about? <laughs> There's that, that paper about like, I think it's supposed to say something about wealth inequality about like, they're like saying, oh, we should eat babies are you talking about a modest proposal yes, yes a modest proposal that's it <laughs> Isn't that what that's she... by jonathan swift okay okay i'm pretty <laughs> like, sure that's I what meant... just said but then you... yes <laughs> i thought you meant like paper about eating babies no you know <laughs> no no well i was just saying that i think that it's been used and even maybe more so in the past when people didn't have like personal social media it was more like a i'm putting this pamphlet out and passing it out in the town square right people were more willing to to do that Sarah I have a question for you and maybe this would even spin into another episode but I want to know what your ideal vision would be if you could have a required SciComm course for graduate students like what would you oh. teach them because there is like as we're talking about there's personal SciComm there's institutional SciComm like what what would you want them to know so despite like a whole rant, mini rant against the, the theoretical <laughs> aspects, like, you know, only publishing theories in communication journals, I really would like graduate students, let's say they're, they're science graduate students, right? And like, you know, I, I would really love them to know about things like the knowledge deficit model, mm -hmm. about framing, which are theoretical kind of abstract things, right? But I mean, I remember... And now again, it sounds so naive. When I learned about the knowledge deficit model, it, it just blew my mind as a graduate student. I was just like, are, really? Really? People are, oh, what have I been doing this entire time with any of my outreach? You know, just like giving people information. Oh, apparently that's not working, which again, naive. I can see that in hindsight. But I think it's so ingrained into us to fall back on this idea of filling a knowledge deficit, we all in some ways, right? I mean, we all produce knowledge. We all produce new information for the world in some way, right? In our small little way. And to be trained as a scientist, I think is, is to adhere to some sort of knowledge deficit model, right? I mm -hmm. form a hypothesis, I collect data. My data do not support my hypothesis. I don't say my data are wrong. 
I mean, assuming that they aren't, right? I, right, okay, we're all, we're assuming appropriate scientific, yes, yeah, appropriate <laughs> scientific process and everything here, okay? Which again, <laughs> full of, uh, full of problematic statements that I just made, but right, this idea that like in the big picture, we form hypotheses, we collect empirical data, they don't support the hypotheses, we revise those hypotheses, right? And so if we think of those hypotheses as attitudes that one might hold, you get information, right? That information maybe refutes your opinion, like in a scientific, rational type processing way, you would refine that opinion. And that's clearly not the case, right? And, and you know, in psychology, you hear this all the time. Humans are not necessarily rational beings. We are great rationalizers, but that is so at odds with how we are trained as scientists, right? And so mm, I think like yeah. just learning about the knowledge deficit model, learning about things like trust, right? What are the dimensions of trust as a scientist if you're looking mm -hmm. to communicate? Competence, you're super high already on competence. You have letters after your name. People see you as a science person, right? You have so much competence, yet we are always so focused on thinking about how we can increase that perception of competence, you know, when maybe some other things we should think about are um, perceptions of warmth or benevolence, right? As communicators, um, mm. you know, are like integrity, right? We've just mm. been talking a little bit about open science and kind of some of the bad behavior that goes on in science, but all that is like so closed to, to general audiences, right? Mm. I mean, I think I live a pretty like, sheltered little life where I like to, you know, read my books and I don't always go on social media. And if I didn't go on social media, I don't know that I would learn about some of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these like poor behaviors in science. Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I, I think things like that, this idea of framing, right? The way you present information matters, um, that people have values that they're going to bring to the table. And that's why knowledge is not always, you know, the thing that is going to change minds, right? Um, I, so I think just this kind of like basic overview of what science communication looks like, because I also think, you know, that not all scientists are likely to want to communicate or likely should communicate you know, True. like to, to general audiences. I think there's. That's a hot take. <laughs> well, you know, it might be a controversial statement, but I can, I can imagine. I mean, I think we all can imagine some scientists that we have we known in our careers. Examples. <laughs> that would... Jason, make the sound. Make, make... the sound. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh... I, I, I feel like this is becoming a catchphrase and I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> You're really pigeonholing yourself into something here. Really pigeonholing myself. I, I feel my like my wife would be so I'm... proud. She's she already is like that. Sounds like an old man. I'm like, yeah, okay. All right, I'll I'll stop I'll stop asking you. But I thought it was good. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. But I do think there's also something about the value of science communication for uh, folks who want who to stay in academia. I think right now we have this sort of. Uh, split right where people who go off into science communication tend also not to take an academic track 
like a traditional academic track, like we think about it, you know, it's sort of like, well, I don't want to do lab work anymore. I don't want to write grants. So I'm mm -hmm. going to, but I love this other thing. I, I just think that when we think about where a lot of funding comes from, federal funding, right, that's taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. I mean, the communication to me seems like it's part of that research package, mm -hmm. right? And that it should be, if this is what is rewarding, then the research that is done is also kind of a means to an end, right? And that end is also sharing that with citizens who have paid for that research. And mm -hmm. I think that's important too, but we, we haven't really talked about science communication in that way, I think. We talk about science mm -hmm. communication as something you can do other than being a researcher necessarily, mm. right? Like researchers right. don't have time or something for this, but uh, you know, I know so, great researchers who this is like what they find is, is extremely rewarding in addition to their own research being rewarding, the communication, the engagement, you know, that's part of the reward. And I, th but I think there is a, there is a, um, there's some kind of opinion and it might be kind of what we were talking about before with the, with the not wanting to kind of promote yourself. I think that people, well, one, they feel like science communication might be promoting yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and the, the negative connotation that might come along with that sometimes is that they think that, you know, if you are uh, trying to communicate your work, you're basically kind of blowing it up out of proportion and mm -hmm. making, you know, making things bigger than they, they should be. And other scientists who might be like, uh, you know, yes, say it again. So, <clears throat> yes. Well, oh, yes. <laughs> I think Jason, we have a name for that alter ego. Uh, no, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be though, because there is like a term Saganization named after Carl Sagan. And we talked about this, I think in a previous episode where um, mm -hmm. he was sort of perceived by peers, as I understand, he was perceived by peers as kind of not as good a scientist because he was a good communicator right. of science because right, he was right, good right, at right. sharing, right, that information. So I think that kind of gets a little bit to this where, you know, sometimes it seems like sharing your work is a little bit like like bragging, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And not well, even I mean, also, or yeah. simplifying also it at, too much. Yeah, yeah. And also look at the look at some of the biggest named scientific communicators, right? And I'm not saying that this is a good thing or a bad thing, but let's look at Sagan. Let's look at Michio Kaku. Let's look at Neil deGrasse Tyson. Let's look at Hawkins. Let's look at some of the other physicists. A lot of them exited science, mm -hmm. and then did more science communication. Also, after. why physicists? Why all physicists? I feel like that's such an abstract discipline I of that science. One. I'm sorry. I don't Do you know, know what I mean? I'm just always like, <laughs> physics, why physics? A was my least favorite, <laughs> least favorite topic. Sorry, physicists, just like not my thing, you know? I think but it's I, because of that, because people, when they hear about it, it makes them feel smart. And they're like, oh, like this world-renowned physicists I understand what they're saying and they like that I mean that's the type of thing like my family is very intellectual and that's the type of thing I can see my dad saying at the dinner table is like wow I, I heard this lecture I heard this talk uh on nature the, not the journal like the channel um and like you know this it, it makes them feel very engaged and proud because it's a difficult thing uh whereas things like biology or psychology or something like that might not feel as 
accomplished when some because yeah. you know, physics is so hard that we feel proud yeah. when we're like, oh, I got that. I got that pop science <laughs> physics concept. <laughs> physics physics is simple though. Like I mean, they have such they have such easy data. <laughs> I mean, they explain Peanut a lot of the variance. <laughs> they explain a lot of the variance in their data. You know, yeah. I always think about exactly how, how messy. Try biology. <laughs> Try biology for for a minute. I was just thinking you about can't, social get any science. I, yeah. I know. Oh like, my then you like go to <laughs> right? humans. It's like uh, messy biology. It's like messy ecology, right? Mm-hmm. Ecology with oh wow. You know, yeah. I always think about like how much of the variance that can be accounted in like physics experiments, chemistry experiments, you know, lab biology experiments, and then ecology and then yeah. social science somewhere way out there. <laughs> physics, the they're, they're like we're measuring this to within one, you know one ten trillionth of an atom's width and biology is kind of like kind of we know that there's a there's a rabbit so somewhere in pretty that sure. area we're pretty sure we're like 80 70 80 percent it's a rabbit yeah and then yeah social yeah is like humans like we think we think they... that, yeah <laughs> we think they might do stuff maybe yeah which like okay. reminds me that <laughs> Uh, I propose that one of you guys get in touch with Sean Carroll, who has a very famous, like a very popular podcast, right? He's a physicist. You know, he does science communication in in that podcast. Um, The other thing about science communication and like, I think why we don't, like why some scientists might be hesitant about it, I, I think, is that it it requires sometimes that we put on a hat that is different from our lab hat or our mm-hmm. science hat. It requires yeah. that we are a bit more open about who we are as people, but that speaks to kind of being warm and personable, right? As a communicator. I mean, from, from lots of advertising and persuasion literature, we know that characteristics of a communicator are really important to how persuasive a message is, right? Mm-hmm. And warmth and trust. I've also been reading about um, power states between the communicator and the audience, like low and high power in a, in mm-hmm. a communicator mm-hmm. and audience. Um, and I'm still like kind of articulating that in my brain. So I'm not going to be able to talk about that in a very clean and articulate manner this evening but um you know and i think just kind of this future podcast future podcast, future podcast but, but dunning kruger effect dunning kruger effect my bad um but yeah <laughs> this idea of like wearing a different hat from your science hat that maybe you have to wear like half a science hat and half a i do these other things hat mm. right um can be it is not is foreign in some ways, right? Because whenever you have your science hat on, you have fully your science hat on. Who goes to conferences and is like, I mean, you're just, a, you're not just, but you are a scientist at a mm-hmm. conference. That is who you are, right? You're not necessarily, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. but 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 you do, I mean, conferences have science communication built into them. Mm-hmm. They have posters and presentations that are SciComm. And that's the, that is where, like a lot of researchers, that's where they actually do their psychom. And now it's to a mm-hmm. fairly narrow audience, but oftentimes that audience, I mean, when I'm speaking, oftentimes I'm like, the audience doesn't know all the nuances of specific this stuff, right? Yeah. So you kind of have to tailor it that I'm way. I'm going to go out on a limb here and point out something that Sarah said a while ago, um, not on this episode, but on previous, in that you know, a conference is only SciComm, mm. 
right? Mm. The entire point of it is to communicate what you've done. And then I was just thinking about the talks that I've, and the posters that I've seen that were the best. And they do some of what Sarah just said, Mm. you know, there was some grounding, there was some, you know, availability of the speakers, vulnerability of the speaker. And those were the ones that came across the best. And I think that's why uh, actually humor is used oftentimes in some of the best sitcom where, you know, it may not be the whole thing is not humorous, right? But you'll oftentimes have a short anecdote or a cartoon or something at the start of the talk that kind of everybody's like, "Ah." they sit, you know, they're, they're all like this, you know, hunched over and ready to take notes. And then they get a joke and they're kind of like, sit back and like, I'm going to listen to this. So, you know, we were just talking about physicists. Um, there, was a t- there was a time some years ago where I went and I saw Brian Green give a talk about oh, very cool. some part of string theory that he figured out the day before. I don't remember. <laughs> and, um, he opened the talk with, you know, you look at us theoretical physicists and you might have an idea in your head. Well, when I got off the plane and I took a taxi to the airport, I uh, went to my, after that, I went to my hotel room and uh, I realized that maybe I need to freshen up a bit. And so I decided that maybe I should, you know, clean my mouth a little. And so I took a swig of some mouthwash only to learn that it was shampoo. Oh, that. And then oh, he gave a talk that, on string theory. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, it strikes me that we haven't gotten past Chelsea's introduction. <laughs> I mean, haven't we though? She's asked like four really important Jesus. questions. <laughs> right. So Chelsea's been interviewing the rest of the group. Yes. That is true. True psychomer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so well, wait, does that mean that you trade in psychomers? Oh. Oh, that was hmm. that was one of those wordplay type jokes that got <laughs> that exact response from other respondents. <laughs> from survey respondents, actually. Mm. Yeah. Well, Sarah, if you ever design a course like that, I'm always, our department does these one unit courses that we can teach, uh, that students have to take like a handful of, and I have been dreaming of a SCICOM and then a statistical consulting one to teach people how to actually do these things. Cause these are skills that you need in industry or in real life, but we never yeah. in the classroom. And I was just thinking when you were talking about that, I was like, I want to offer them at the same time because that those would go so well together. Like yeah. half of what I do as a consultant, cause I consult on the side or when we're off contract, like, uh, is communicate with other people. Like I'm not always like doing their statistics or teaching them statistics. Like I'm often communicating with them. Um, and that would be such a good pairing, but I don't know enough about the science of SciComm to design that. But if you ever make a reading list, I will one day teach a one unit course on it. Well, we <laughs> should design that course. We should just design yes. that course because I think it would be useful. And I, also, I think we yeah. should publish like a lean pub textbook for <laughs> a course like that, you know, honestly, although would that be a good textbook? Because wouldn't it just be constantly updating to the point where they would never be able to update it fast enough? That's probably true. It probably should be. That would, yeah. Keep you, that would keep you in the publishing game. Mm-hmm. You just have to publish new versions every yeah, six months. Yeah, that's true. But every like month is Every semester, yeah, edition, yeah, every semester, yeah. Except that well, Lean I Pub mean, is one of those like self-published, pay by donation. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, it's not a money maker. Oh, well, 
I mean, if you didn't want to update it all the time, it would be probably possible to put together a really informative reading list mm -hmm. of like, this is the origins of the discipline. Yeah, that would be so great. And, you know, and I do have reading lists because I've taught graduate seminars in science communication. So please, just, oh my gosh, I feel go. like we already have this. We just go. need to consolidate everything into if you make it public, that would be so great because I try and do, we, we do one day on data science communication in my class and it is not enough. They need a full, I mean, one hour a week, but they, they need a full yeah. semester, one hour a week of that to like really grasp yeah. it and like do it for themselves. Cause I think that's, that's the problem is sometimes we're just telling people like, this is how one side comes. And then we don't have them <laughs> do it <laughs> themselves and, and see how hard it is. Cause I, a lot of times people explain my jokes to me when I make jokes on social media. Um, and I think it's because that's great. It, it is not great. <laughs> um, I think it's because people don't realize how deeply you have to understand something to make a good joke about it. And so I will make a joke about something and someone will be like, oh, if you want to learn more about this topic, you oh, should check out this talk. And I think it's because oh, I'm young too, but so it, but I always just Wait, go like, hang do you on, think Chelsea. I don't know this topic that I made a really good joke about? <laughs> so I kind of want to know, and this gets to this like study that I've been thinking about and, and we'll be doing mm. soon, but this idea that like women and men mm -hmm. who you are your identity like do you think people want to explain that joke to you like yeah. why right why is, is that because of who you are presenting yourself you know what I mean yeah um, I think a little bit because I so I have kind of I always call him my counterpart but there's this guy that um PH Dimitri on Twitter follow him uh he's wonderful he's also a statistician and we sort of came up together on Twitter and like got more popular together um and he and I talk about this all the time because we tweet similar things. We do similar things. Um, and I get explained to me things oh, a lot more and he'll even sometimes message me and like, he'll, he'll send me something that someone did and he'll be like, is this what it's like to have mansplaining? <laughs> oh, <laughs> but it's not, and it's not even men only that do it, but I think sure. there is a combination yeah. of identities that make people go like, Oh, like how nice I can explain this to them. You guys should do a Twitter swap. <laughs> oh. oh my God. <laughs> this, this would be a fascinating content analysis just to analyze the content from <laughs> PH Dimitri's yeah. Twitter account and yours, right? Especially if it's similar. Yeah. It would be a fascinating, yeah. Yeah. I think you just outlined a case study. <laughs> I, I know, but, but then, you know, you'd kind of have to like think about how many times like so you could code how many times Chelsea gets an explanation versus mm -hmm. PH Dimitri gets an explanation but yeah. then also like who are the people explaining yeah. right and then and that's where it gets difficult because I think then you have to guess at like characteristics or ascribe yeah, yeah which is you know it's just messy but I have noticed that on TikTok I get my jokes explained to me more than on Twitter oh, and I think that's because on Twitter your bio is more informative and readily accessible and so I don't even think on TikTok I have that I have a PhD um I think my Twitter bio says that <laughs> and so I think part of it is that like especially the way you interact with TikTok like you're never going to someone's page whereas Twitter you do more um I think that people don't realize that I'm an expert in certain things and so they're like oh yeah. like I made a joke about 
something, probably p-values. Every time I make a joke about p-values, people are like, well, you should just try Bayesian statistics. And I'm like, please, that's like my entire <laughs> expertise. Um, but people don't know who you are as much on TikTok. Yeah. So they, they just see a video in their well, feed and they're like, oh, I need to tell this girl that she's got to be Bayesian. Um, whereas on Twitter, I feel like there's more personality. So like, you, you know, of people and you know what they do. And so it's a little bit less on Twitter. So I, I wonder if that is just a perceived expertise thing. If you know who someone is, you're less likely. Yeah. I mean, doesn't, doesn't this go back to something that you and Sarah were talking about earlier was comparison across platforms. Yeah. This might actually give you an idea yeah. to do a comparison across platforms because both of the content is Chelsea. Chelsea's inherently the same. <laughs> oh yeah. As far as I know. Uh, no, no, I no, I no, but but Chelsea doesn't have a PhD on TikTok. Only on Twitter, no, she has a PhD. Right. no, no PhD on TikTok. You know, that actually would be very interesting to try and post. Actually, because I post this, I post my TikToks on Twitter. Oh, interesting. Um, it would be really interesting to see the different types of responses. But of course, it's confounded because I think I have like ten or a hundred times more followers on Twitter mm. than I do on TikTok. Twitter. So you just have a lot yeah so you have like a larger sample well you could time. you could normalize it I think <clears throat> probably potentially I'll get a grad student right on that <laughs> <laughs> um wow we have been going for a while and we haven't even started the conversation on ethics I know which we, so that yeah. that means that we need to do it in a future episode we, yeah we do we, we do, do need to do it in a future episode. we need down. Chelsea back good okay um, I think we should leave it there for now. We've probably blabbed on for like an hour now, just <laughs> introducing Chelsea. <laughs> if anyone's still listening out there, thank you for listening. Um, it has been a pleasure. This is Planet Psycom. We have Dr. Chelsea Parlett Pellerini on today and hopefully back in the future. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yay. Yay.